Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Our text today is is just beautiful, uh, and and then it's also really awkward for Family Sunday. <laughs> we have the divorce part, and then we have this beautiful scene with Jesus and the kids. I think the scene with Jesus and the kids, I think it, it, it obviously is perfect for this. We see some awkwardness where parents are trying to bring little kids, and they get rejected, and then Jesus is like publicly rebuking his disciples and, and all this stuff. And um, so excited to get to that. We do need to talk a little bit about the D word here for a hot minute. Um, and uh, our, our text today, it shows us that divorce was just as controversial and sensitive back in Jesus's day as it is in our day. My heart today is to be pretty simple. Like there's, there's a lot we could say about the topic of divorce, entire books written on the, the various scriptures and uh, teachings of the Bible regarding divorce and what that means practically and stuff like that. We don't have time to go into all of that, but I do want to say as simply as I can, with honestly a lot of fear and trembling, what the Bible says uh, about this, this very painful topic. And just want to acknowledge that it's, it is painful, that so, some of us here today are divorced and divorced and remarried, and, and I just can't imagine the, the loss and suffering that that has, has been. Some of the most godly people I know have been uh, divorced, and, uh, and this is a, a huge disclaimer that as we get into this a little bit, is that divorce and remarriage by no means puts you outside the never stopping, never giving up, unfailing and forever love of God for you. It never puts you outside God's ability to redeem and heal uh, and, and offer forgiveness. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you in marriage, no matter what your current relationship status is, God still looks at you with tenderness, with love and delight. And so if you have questions, brings up issues, that nothing would make me happier than to come alongside you in whatever you're thinking or praying about or struggling with regards to, to this, this topic uh, in, in marriage. And um, it, I think also this, this could be comforting for those of us who are married. And if you're in a tough season of marriage, the whole reason divorce exists is because marriage is hard. The Bible has a beautiful vision for marriage, but it's also very realistic that marriage can be, can be some of the most painful moments of someone's story, painful parts of someone's story. And so if you're here today in a marriage that's painful or working through hard things in marriage, I hope this is encouraging to you. The Bible sees you. God knows uh, what it's like to be a sinner married to another sinner. Now, the context for our text today is Jesus on the way to Jerusalem to do what? What's he going to do when he gets there? Yeah, be crucified. He's going to die. That's right. Uh, And he's already told the disciples and us plainly that he will go to Jerusalem, be rejected, betrayed, and killed. He's not pulling any punches. And then we have the disciples back in chapter 8 saying, uh, confessing that they believe that Jesus is the king, that he's the Messiah, the long-awaited one sent from God to rescue 
his people. And so Jesus is saying, okay, if you believe I'm the Messiah, believe I'm the king, let me tell you what kind of king I am. And let me tell you what it means to follow me, to be my disciple. And here in chapter 10, this is like Jesus's like, uh, some of his final teachings on his way to die and lead, leave the disciples, he hits on three very important topics. And I think it's profound that these topics are not abstract theological concepts or anything like that. It's very practical. In chapter 10, we get at marriage, divorce and marriage, kids and money. And this is, this is very significant if we're looking at Jesus as the king, what he wants to say to his disciples uh, as he's about to die. And he gets at these, these things that are about as fundamental to our lived experience as we get, you know, like our closest relationship, our kids, and our money. We're not talking about money today, um, which maybe I shouldn't have told you. No, no, be, be no one here next week. That's what we're talking about next week. But the context, Jesus is, Jesus is teaching people that believe he is the king with all authority, that he's the one God has sent to rescue God's people. So that's, that's, what Je- that's the context here. That's what Jesus is, who Jesus is speaking to. So if you don't believe that Jesus is the king or, or, or whatever, then you have to consider what you're going to do with these teachings, what you're going to do with who Jesus is. He's teaching with one of all, with all authority. And if you don't like what he says, um, then you, you, you have a choice. You know, if you don't like what he says, you can choose to say, okay, even though I don't like it, I believe you're the king or you can choose to make your own choices or be, do what seems right to you. Okay, let's dive in before the kids get to antsy. First two verses. Jesus then left that place, went into the region of Judea across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him as was his custom and he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for man to divorce his wife? So it's a normal day in the ministry of Jesus, walking along, a crowd comes, he starts to teach them. And then the Pharisees try to trap him. They're trying to test and trap him, going on with a question about divorce. Two, th- two interesting things about the Pharisees asking this question. The, f- the first one is considering where he is. He's in the exact same spot across the Jordan <clears throat> where John the Baptist did most of his ministry. And I don't know if you remember that story, John the Baptist got his head cut off because, of a, because he tried to deal with divorce. Because he told Herod Antipas, who controls this region that Jesus is in currently, that it was unlawful for him to have divorced his old wife and married his brother's wife, Herodias. And that got John the Baptist killed. And so you kind of got to wonder, maybe the Pharisees are trying to bait Jesus into making the same statement that God John the Baptist killed so that then maybe Herodias will get, uh, you know, all up in arms and get Herod to kill Jesus for them or something. Uh, so it's a, it's a hotly debated uh, topic. It's something that there's already been bloodshed over. Um, and then also, this was really interesting to study this passage, is that uh, there were, there were, conflicting opinions on divorce within Judaism at this time. Uh, because it's Kid Sunday, I won't go into the details, but there was a conservative view and a liberal view, a, a not, not as conservative view when it came to the Bible's teaching on divorce. And so it was very hotly debated back and forth within Jewish culture. And so there, 
baiting Jesus to enter into this hotly debated topic. And it's just very significant. I think this should just give us all like a pause. It should sober us that 2,000 years later, uh, it's just as sensitive, just as difficult, just as controversial, just as painful as it was then. It wasn't like everything was perfect back then and now we've messed it up. It's just this marriage is so central to God's design in the gospel that it's always been a battleground. So they asked Jesus this hotly debated question, verse 3. He responds, what did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. It was because your your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So masterfully, Jesus sidesteps any political drama. He's not talking about Herod Antipas and Herodias here, and he just starts asking, what does the law say? So we've sidestepped any, any drama there because it's just some rabbis talking about their old dusty book. And I think one thing that we can see, learn from Jesus in his response, before we even get to the teaching on divorce, is that his first response is, what does the Bible say? It's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine as you get into all these debates about all the hot button issues of the day, and we're miles away from the actual words of Scripture. We haven't actually looked at what Scripture says, lined them all up, looked at them in context, and then like, based on the teachings of Scripture, this is my conclusion. And listen, it's not always black and white. I'm not saying that if you do that, then there's no debate or whatever. Like, there's some things that there's no debate on in Scripture, a lot of things. But there are other things where there's biblically faithful stances on the same issue that are different. Um, The question is, do you have a biblical view of it? Do you have a biblical stance? So he starts with going to Scripture. Good lesson for all of us. But then... The next thing that we see is that the Pharisees in this topic of divorce divorce were lasered in to this one law from Deuteronomy 24 uh, dealing with the issue of divorce. And what we see from Jesus is that when we're in this discussion is that we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. This is a mini hermeneutical lesson. Kids say hermeneutical. Oh, some kids did it. That was awesome. Uh, which is how do we understand and interpret Scripture? Uh, but w- what basically what that means is you don't just grab a verse and go to town. You don't just grab a verse and, and run away with it. It's that we have to say, what does all of Scripture says? Because what does he do? They, they quote Deuteronomy 24, a very specific rule. And then Jesus goes back to Genesis and brings Genesis into this discussion of divorce. And he says that the command of Moses was a concession, not the creator of human life's design for human life. It was not the design. And so this shows us another another very important thing when it comes to studying scripture, whether it's divorce or any other issue, is is what question we bring to the text is going to greatly determine where we end up. Because if we come to the text saying, what am I allowed to do? This is what I want to do. Can I find a verse that will let me do it? Will the Bible let me do what I want? 
Because if that's your frame of mind, when you come to the scriptures, looking for loopholes, trying to justify what you already want to do, you've already missed the point. Like you're, you're already lost. And what Jesus' response shows us is that our, the question should be, what is God's design for human flourishing and how can I get into it, lean into it, live into it more fully? It's not like, what, where's the line of sin that I could maybe stick my toe over? And it's like, where is the swimming pool of God's design and how do I jump in head first? As hard as it is, as scary as it is, as much as it hurts. In the context, the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 24 was mostly about protecting women. That's what we talk about the hard heart. It, it had nothing to do with God's design. It was God as a tender, loving God and father looking at a social class, women in their day who had very little rights and were honestly oppressed and mistreated and left destitute in the situation of divorce. And so the command of Moses was, was trying to protect women against hard, sinful hearts. It was a law that was trying to make a terrible situation slightly less terrible for the person who had the least power and fewest options. Jesus skips past the law that was dealing with a loophole, was an exception, a concession to hard hearts, and goes straight to God's design. Male and female, he created them. And when they come together in the mystery of God's design for human life, they become one. The two become one flesh. According to God's design, when man and woman are joined together, they're like one new person. It is a breathtaking, a mind-blowing vision for human intimacy and relationship. In verse 9, I think, is the keystone text here. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In this culture and throughout a lot of Jewish history, men were functionally the lords of the house of the marriage. They were the kind of the rulers. They held the, the power. And Jesus is saying here in verse 9 that God is actually the Lord of marriage. That God sovereignly joins man and woman together. And this is the, the way I've come to think about it, at least in my own life, my own marriage, is that marriage belongs to God and I'm just living into it. Like marriage is God's house that he's invited me into and I have said yes and come into it. Which is counterintuitive because, you know, we, in our culture, we date, we propose, we do all this stuff to get married and we choose and you know, there's just a lot of agency. I'm not saying that's not part of it. But what God is saying that a layer above that, uh, the Bible is saying a layer above that is that is God. No matter who you married, how you married, what your faith was when you married, is that God joins a man and woman together. Marriage is God's world, and I'm just living in it. It's God's doing. Which might be a hard word for some of us to hear. But I think this, under, this idea of God being involved in each and every marriage, each and every marital union, gives, gives some depth to the really uncomfortable verses in 10 through 12 when he says that he was alone with the disciples and they asked him more questions about that because they, they're like trying to play it cool this out in public and then they get in private and they're like, Jesus, wait, what? What is going on? 
And he says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, commits adultery. If marriage belongs to God and I'm just living in it, if marriage is God's doing first and foremost, then breaking and redoing kind of flies in the face of the Lord of marriage. Realize we're standing on very sensitive ground right now. Uh, And there's a lot we could talk about more about. This is not a full treatment of the entire Bible's teaching on these topics of divorce and remarriage. But I think what we see today in the context of Mark is that your marriage and singleness, your relational relationship status is central to your discipleship to Jesus. It's not an interruption to it. It's not a distraction from it. If you're married, one of, if not the most important area of your life when it comes to your apprenticeship to Jesus is your marriage. How you are transformed into the image of Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus and become a person of love, it is your marriage. And not in the text, we could have a whole sermon or sermon series on singleness and a biblical theology of marriage. We, we live out of our relational or relationship status, whether it's married or single. Many times in my marriage, and I haven't even been married that long, I come up to this idea of my marriage is God's, that God has joined Camille and I together, and I'm living into his world. It's actually God's creation, his, his doing. And so we submit to it. In the times where it hurts more than we thought possible, in the times where the, the way forward seems long and painful or without hope or confusing and mysterious, there's great comfort for those who have ears to hear that your marriage is of God, that God has joined you together. And we can say, okay, and live in the house and not freak out, not do anything drastic. And what we see is that often in marriage, this is how God makes us what James would say, complete and lacking nothing. It might be painful. It might be a trial that could test us um, or deepen us. I can't even begin to describe how much God has refined me and softened me and humbled me and showed me his grace and compassion through Camille, shown me my need for him. And just anecdotally, some of the people who seem to have the deepest joy, the most peaceful presence, the, to be the most like God, full of the fruit of the Spirit, are the people who have had the hardest marriages I've ever heard of. Our dear sister Sue Ogden, who just went to be with Jesus, had a very difficult marriage. And if Methodists, I think she grew up, spent most of her time in Methodist church. <laughs> if Methodists produced mystics, it would be so Sue Ogden. Like that lady was close to God, communed with God. But it's a hard word to hear, but God can redeem the worst marriage and create beautiful people through it. There's more to the discussion. There's other verses that ha- have some exceptions or some instructions to Jesus followers married to non-Jesus followers. We still don't have time to go into. And let me just say that Jesus and the Bible is in no way saying that anyone needs to stay and endure abuse. If you're here today, you're experiencing any kind of abuse. 
in your house, in your marriage, please let me or someone else know. Um, let us, others come alongside you. Many times a separation, space apart for safety and clarity is essential for beginning the healing journey, the redemption journey or whatever. None, none of this is saying stay and take abuse. But to be clear, I believe Jesus is saying that the choice to people in marriage in the hard times is this. Will you show up to what God wants to do in you and through you in your marriage? Do you, will you show up to what God wants to do you do in you in the deep parts of who you are through your marriage? Now to the happy parts. Verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So people are bringing little children to get a blessing, and the disciples rebuked them, which is weird. Like, wait, what? Don't we love kids? And Well, I think generally we love kids in our society, maybe a little bit too much. You know, you got helicopter parents or, you know, people who just kind of lose their identity and their kids or whatever. Uh, we might sentimentalize our kids too much, but back in Jesus's day and age, kids were pretty much only valuable for the work they could do when they grew up. So childhood was just kind of like something to be endured to where the sons might take on the family business, women could be married off to have families of their own, um, or stay in the house and do chores and whatnot. Uh, so they were just kind of tolerated generally. Um, and so it would have been paradigm shattering for Jesus to not only say, let them come to me, to see Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, the king with all authority, being tender towards little people, but also that the kingdom of God belongs to such of these. Because in this moment, the kingdom of God would have been associated with like military victory and conquest and fighting to overthrow the Roman oppression or whatever. And if that's the case, you don't want kids on your team. Like you want warriors and the winners and the strategists and the people who are rich and strong and capable. You don't want kids. But Jesus is showing us something important about the nature of the kingdom. And what is it? What are, what are the qualities of kids? And, and it says, in such of these, it's not just kids. The, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Well, can I just say it's not their sweet, innocent little hearts. <laughs> Sometimes people come to that passage and like, just be like a kid, just be happy and innocent. Like kids don't sin until they're older. It's like you, they just must not have had a two-year-old in their house very recently or ever. Uh, kids are fun and amazing. I love my kids, uh, but they, you know they can also be selfish and defiant and you know biting and fighting and refusing to share and. All these things, like kids are by no means some example of like a holy character, or innocent character by which we might be able to earn the kingdom. So what is Jesus getting at? Two things. First one is in verse 15. <clears throat> Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom like a little child will never enter it. The first thing we see about kids is that kids are masters at receiving good gifts for free. What is the quality of kids is they can receive stuff without any shame. Like you offer a kid a popsicle. What do you guys do with popsicles? Eat them. <laughs> Ruby goes, ah. Uh, 
kids devour popsicles. They're not like, uh, I don't know, should I have done it? You know, I, I kind of hit my sister. I'm not going to eat a popsicle. I don't think I really deserve it or whatever. And they're going to eat it and then ask for two more. You know, the kids are great at receiving good gifts. There's no shame. They don't question like, should I accept this dusty crop hopper airplane? Uh, or maybe should I like return it, you know, for a, cho- a toy that's like less expensive or something like that? No, kids receive good things by grace for free, without shame. That dies, that dies as we grow up and struggle with sin and shame. But that's how we receive the kingdom. Like a kid receiving a popsicle. The second thing is that kids are the best imitators. Kids are so moldable, moldable. My, my youngest, Isla, who's two, is marches to her own beat, is super ornery and just kind of default position is no. So even, even with Isla, who you probably do want on your team if you're trying to overthrow Rome, uh, is so moldable, is such an imitator who would just do whatever she's seeing me or Camille or her brother and sister doing. What does this have to do with receiving the kingdom? Well, a working definition of the kingdom is life with God under the rule of God. That's the, the good news. Through Jesus, we get life with God. We've been forgiven of sin, united with God and his family, adopted to live under his rule. Like he's our father, we live under his rule in his household, as members of his household, under his perfect design for human flourishing. And so often it's, it's the winners who don't need anything who can't get the kingdom of God, as we'll see in the, the rich young ruler story next. The people that are rich, that are wealthy, that are educated, who have all the answers and resources and networks to use that are furthest from living with life, living life with God under his rule because they don't need anything and they've earned everything they have so they can't receive it and then they know how to do it. So they're not looking to actually imitate their father. They're not looking to come under a rule of someone else and say okay to some authority outside of themselves. The kids are hungry to learn to be shaped and molded. Like they're, they're born with these brains that are so absorbent. They, I'm reigning in neuroscience rant here because our brains are amazing and how kids' brains develop are meant to absorb the presence, the behavior, the language of the people around them. And that's what happens to us in the gospel. We are forgiven and adopted into God's family. And so then we can do what Ephesians 5, 1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Life with God under his rule means that we're with God, we submit to his rule, and we do things. We become like him as we observe him and imitate him. They're, they're looking, kids are looking for a way to live in the world outside of themselves. How do I talk? How do I behave? What do I do in this situation? Their eyes are open. They're hungry to embody a way of being in the world that will lead to the good life. And this is the posture that Jesus is inviting all of us into. Will we receive good things with shameless freedom? And will we imitate our heavenly father as beloved children? Allow God to lead us into ways of being or 
doing that are different than what we would normally do, willing to be corrected and redirected by God, often through our brothers and sisters. And it's not hard to see a connection with the whole marriage idea of submitting to God's design, to submitting to the God joining of a man and a woman. Can we, with the trust and receptivity of a child, enter into God's creation of marriage and allow him to mold us and teach us, soften us under his rule as we submit to that? So one application point for you this this morning uh, is to invite you to serve once a month in our kids' church ministry. Not, maybe not a lot of us have kids in the home or whatever, and there's just something beautiful about just at least one time a month where you can just be around some little people <laughs> and learn from them and let them bring up stuff in your own heart and see how they interact and just ask God, like, I'm going in to serve. Yes, I want to serve the kids as a kid's teacher or a kid's volunteer uh, helper, uh, but what do you want to show me? God is always showing me things about myself through my kids. I talked to Amy or myself, how you can just join. It's a once a month thing. It's not an overwhelming commitment or anything. And, and just be curious on how God might invite you to receive the kingdom more fully as you're around the people such as these, the people that God said are those most primed to receive the kingdom. To close, look at the last verse. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. He took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Let's hope this image can fill your mind, your, your imagination of Jesus, the king of the universe, holding little infants, little kids, touching them on the head, speaking blessing over their little lives, their little minds, their little hearts. And I, the invitation, as awkward as it might feel to you, is like, can you enter into that space as a kid? Can you enter into that space of letting Jesus hold you, put his hand on you to bless your little mind and your little heart, your little life? Can you come with everything that you have, with all your distractions and shame and guilt and let Jesus into your life. These words about divorce and remarriage are scary. And this invitation to be like a child out in this scary world can, can be overwhelming, but it comes from the one who holds us, who blesses us and ultimately laid down his life for us in love. Let me pray. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.